Hello, neighbor. Welcome to Copper Mountain Mesa and our podcast, Mojave Memories. Readings from books and essays written by Annalise Cooper. Her first reading will be from her book, Memory Dam, Chapter 3, Sky Valley, and Chapter 4, Copper Mountain Mesa. We don't have a sponsor yet, but that is in the works. Thanks and enjoy. On January 9th, 1993, I attended my first sweat, thanks to my new friend and mentor, Jean. She didn't smile much. The sweat was held at the very end of Sunfair Road in Joshua Tree, where the pavement hits the dirt. It was led by White Flower, and the Inipi, or sweat lodge, was packed. It was all very beautiful and cleansing. Afterwards, Jean approached me, accompanied by a young woman who looked a little apprehensive. She needs to tell you something, Jean announced with a tip of her head towards her companion. I was standing next to you when you put your offering into the fire, she told me softly. I remember, I said. I had made a pain doll as a ceremonial offering to the sacred fire. I used plant materials and placed the doll in a pretty box. It was on the altar during the entire sweat, and afterwards I placed it on top of the burning embers and asked that my pain be healed. I felt lighter, less burdened, less bullied. Tell her, Jean prompted. I was standing on your right, the woman said earnestly. I felt this excruciating pain enter my left arm. It felt like burning flames, like the worst fever I've ever had. And it seared across my chest and into my right arm. Then it felt like the flames burst out of me and back into the fire. The sacred fire told me that it was your pain and that I should tell you, because then you will know a healing has taken place. I began to sob, unable to speak, tears streaming down my face. I could only gaze at her and nod because my heart knew she spoke the truth. The owners of the property where the sweats were held were moving to Kentucky. They had wolf dogs and were taking all but one with them. China, the one staying behind, needed a new human, and Jean suggested that I needed a wolf dog. Trouble was, I had already brought home a puppy three weeks before, Thunder, a glorious, furry, large, mixed-breed puppy with a long tail. Dirk, my ex-husband, was still reeling from my recent insubordination, and I knew another dog would not go over well. In 1989, Dirk and I had bought a 10-acre piece of land in Sky Valley, or Desert Hot Springs, as it's also known, as an investment. And I had been wanting to move out there ever since. In the beginning, we had the money to build a house on it, and I designed an exquisite home in Moroccan style. But the building never happened, because we'd quit our jobs and were living like millionaires on our ocean-going fishing boat. So by the time China the wolf dog needed a home, I just had the bare 10 acres, five of which were fenced. I told Dirk I was bringing China home and that I would move our eight-foot cab over camper to the land and live there with Eric and the dogs until we figured something out. I should at this point introduce Eric. I've already told you Dirk is, was my now ex-husband. Um, Eric is my son, and at the time he was five. Uh, he's now 32. But anyway, here we go. 
So I said to, I told Dirk that we were going to move our eight foot cab over camper to the land and live there with Eric and the dogs until we figured something out. Dirk was apoplectic with fury, but something had happened to me and I was no longer submissive or obedient to him. So Eric and I moved out to the land. The first Friday we were there, Dirk came and spent the night. The next morning, nature called and he realized he would have to poop in a bucket and bury his waste, as Eric and I had been doing. Dirk left and never spent another night out there with us. Things became terribly strained. Eric and I loved the dogs and living on the land and didn't want to move back to the house with Dirk. In February, after a terrible storm during which it felt as though our eight-foot home was going to be blown to Alaska, Eric and I moved into a 29-foot trailer that a neighbor had parked on the land and told us we could use. I began to move some personal items out to the land and decorated the trailer with my statues and skins from Kenya, lots of books and other items that Eric and I cared about for one reason or another. I left the TV and all the electronics. I had no need for them. There was a tree out on the land that Dirk and I had nurtured from a seed that we brought back from Baja, Mexico, into a beautiful, thriving tree. Since our split, the tree looked like it was dying, and every day I would talk to it and tell it that it symbolized the blossoming of my marriage and to please stop dying because it was breaking my heart. By May, the tree was beyond hope, and one Sunday, after Eric had spent the weekend with his father, He told me his dad had a new girlfriend and she had big tits. My five-year-old son had to watch his mother fall apart and then pull herself back together again. Dirk had not supported Eric and me since we moved out. The house was in foreclosure because he hadn't made the mortgage payments, even though he was now working and still living in the house. I had been supporting Eric by giving crystal meditation classes at a nearby health spa and facilitating crystal journey healings. One day, when we were taking care of the next-door neighbor's trees and dogs, I was bitten by a black widow spider that was hiding underneath the dog food bag. A week later, a hornet was sitting on the hose I picked up to water the dogs, and it stung me on the same hand as the spider bite. When the doctor saw me, he called all three of his nurses into the room. They gazed in horror at my naked body, which was completely covered in red raised rashes and pus-covered wounds. My right arm was three times its usual size, and the lymph nodes in my armpit were swollen to the size of golf balls. I became violently allergic to everything, and my skin was livid. I became alarmingly thin and had thoughts of suicide, but felt that would be terribly selfish of me. And besides, I wasn't going to let my asshole husband push me into the dirt. Later, when the couple who hosted the sweats moved to Kentucky, I was gifted the Inipi and moved it to the west end of our fenced five acres. I dug a fire pit and created an altar according to Jean's specifications. We began to have women's sweats every other Friday afternoon. Women would arrive and help me get the sacred fire going to heat the lava rocks, as well as set up for the potluck dinner after the sweats. Eric spent every other weekend with his dad in the Palm Desert house. We often had drum circles and sing-alongs. 
Then in June of 1993, Dirk had me served with divorce papers during business hours at the escrow office where I worked. I was absolutely devastated in an, oh my God, my fairy tale life is over. He's not Prince Charming, he's fucking dumping me, kind of way. Completely beside myself, panting with agitation and disbelief, I remember driving south on Highway 74, east on Haystack, north on Portola, west on Highway 111, south on Highway 74, east on Haystack, over and over for hours. My world was crumbling. My perfect husband didn't love me anymore. My perfect family was a farce. My entire perfect life was a lie. Just when I thought things couldn't possibly get any worse, one of the neighbors accused me of being a devil worshiper because of the sweat lodge and called the cops. I was told after several intimidating visits from the police that I couldn't live on my land in a trailer. I either had to build a house or move. We had no septic system, buried our poop and got water out of the hose. So we, quote, failed to comply with basic decent living standards, end quote. A judge orders us to move off the land by January 1, 1994. At this point, I hadn't been working at all because of my health and skin issues, and my welfare check was $490 a month plus $100 in food stamps. I was absolutely desperate and seemed to have no choices at all. Jean, Stone Woman, suggested it was time to find another home. Jean, a recovering alcoholic, suggested we ask her friend from AA, Mark, who was a real estate agent, to help us find me a new home. She often waxed lyrical about her little pink cabin on Copper Mountain Mesa, where she lived for some time before developing heart problems and moving into Joshua Tree. You should look for a place up on the Mesa, she said. Nothing is up to code. People offer real creative financing and it's cheap. When Mark called to say he'd found the perfect little place on Copper Mountain Mesa, five miles off the nearest paved road with panoramic views and distant neighbors, I agreed to check it out. It was very bare and clean, with two small bedrooms and one bathroom sitting on three acres of unfenced land adjacent to hundreds of acres of BLM land. A Vietnam War veteran named Kirk lived in the house and slept by the front gate, rifle in his hand. He raked the entire cleared area of the property every day, carefully examining tracks and other telltale signs of invaders or marauders. There was a pit target practice area on the east side of the house and there were no birds. There was no piped water. I would have to haul my own, storing it in the 2400 gallon tank out back. The house and surrounding area with glorious views of two snow-capped mountains, which reminded me of Mount Kenya and Mount Kilimanjaro, overlooking Joshua Tree National Monument, all reminded me of Kenya. My heart was smiling for the first time in months. I really liked this place. Call your mom, Jean suggested later, back at her house. You can use my phone. It's going to be expensive calling the Netherlands, I reminded her. 
Besides, my mum doesn't like me right now, and I don't like her. I haven't talked to her in months. I blew the lid on the big family secret, and I'm pissed off at her because she didn't protect me from her fucking husband. You really want this house, insisted Jean. She can help you. Just call her. See what happens. We spoke Dutch, my mother and I. She lived in Almelo on the east side of Holland. I told her what I needed. She agreed to help. I put in an offer on the house, $25,000 with $5,000 down and $200 a month payments. Owner will carry. They agreed. We went into escrow. On December 11th, just two days later, 1993, I met Mary Frances Bell and her father, John. We were all over at Jean's house in Joshua Tree. Juanita, Mary's mother and John's wife, had died two days before from unknown causes. Juanita's family was desperately fighting the coroner, begging the court to disallow an autopsy because it went against Juanita's Mescalero Apache beliefs. The coroner wouldn't release her body because she had died of unknown causes in the emergency room. Mary was only 12 and so terribly sad. My heart wept for this little baby girl. I met Mary's brother Matthew six days later on December the 17th, 1993, the day of his beloved mother's funeral. He was 14. It was a freezing cold day at Joshua Tree Cemetery, literally freezing. I noticed that Matt's brown arms were blue under his completely inadequate red t-shirt. I felt his grief. I had nothing to offer him except for my jacket. I walked over to my van, the Gypsy Rose, slid open the door and grabbed the red and black anorak. Touching his arm, I handed him the jacket. He took it, put it on. Thank you, he said. I would have drowned in his sadness, but he turned away and got back about the business of burying his mother. People were asked to share stories about Juanita over her coffin, which we all surrounded. No one said anything. I never met the poor woman, but I couldn't bear the silence. I said something inane about water drops, waves and oceans, how we were all one and would carry Juanita forward in our hearts. Juanita's mother and sisters glared at me, so I shut up. Four days later on the winter solstice, my five-year-old Eric and I moved into the house on 66643 Tortoise Road, five miles from the nearest paved road and damned hard to give directions to, which was exactly why I moved out here into the wilds of Copper Mountain Mesa in Southern California's Mojave Desert, 16 miles northeast of Joshua Tree. I was heartbroken, disillusioned, and my purpose was to fall off the planet. I went into survival mode. Our neighborhood was full of methamphetamine manufacturers and dealers. And through a series of mishaps and crooked trades with friendly neighbors, I soon had no car. It was a daily challenge to get Eric to the school bus stop, which was six miles away. Keeping hauled water in my tank was also a challenge, especially since after paying my monthly mortgage of $218 and the bills, Eric and I barely had enough for anything else. My mum began to send us $200 a month. Cash tucked into a loving card 
in a blue airmail envelope which arrived around the 21st of every month. How we looked forward to those envelopes. So at this point, I'd like to introduce you to my dear friend and neighbor, Cattell, who actually sort of came up with the idea that we should do this podcast. And she's my sound engineer and my producer and my editor and my friend. (laughs) Um, Anyway, she has some questions that she thought you might be asking and uh, wanted some clarification. So here's Cattell. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm uh, Cattell, and I've been living up here on the Copper Mountain Mesa for the last four years. That's a whole other story. So I want to find out, and I'm sure the listeners are very interested in finding out if we're going to find out more about your mother and the secrets that you revealed. Yes. Um, In honesty, the book sort of starts with that. I just decided not to start with that because it's a bit dark. Um, But yes, in the first chapter, it will be revealed... uh, it's all around childhood, and even though growing up in Kenya was like growing up in paradise, there was a very dark side. And um, I don't know, perhaps next time I'll read you that story, or not, we'll see. But you'll get to know soon enough. Also, you had mentioned something about living the high life mm. on a boat. Yes, that also it will be clarified in, in the first chapter. So maybe I should read that next time. But... Um, Yes, uh, very much in short, my dad died, left me $320,000 in inheritance, and uh, Dirk and I quit our jobs, bought a, oh God, $160,000, I think, dollar ocean-going fishing boat, and um, lived like millionaires for a few years. <laughs> hey, at least you got to do <laughs> like millionaires for a period right, of time. Right, you know? oh, it was fabulous. Not everybody gets to no, do that. No, gosh. Um, I'm very interested in the uh, Inipi. Yes, the sweat what, lodge. What, what is an Inipi, actually? Well, uh, the Inipi is the frame for the sweat lodge used in Native American rituals. Uh, It's for cleansing, prayers. It's very spiritual. It's also very physical. You sweat like a dog. Oh, do dogs even sweat? Um, But the Anipi is the framework and it's made out of arrowhead. uh, uh, It's um, like reeds that you find uh, close to waterways and it's very bendable and flexible. And when the Anipi is made properly, um, this sort of star-like shape appears at the very top of it. Like, the, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I'll have to draw it for you. But yes, Anipi, I-N-I-P-I. And I believe that was the Lakota Sioux word for their sweat lodge. Well, I, I'm assuming we're going to learn more about your children in future readings. Yes. And... Um, Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this uh, first podcast. Yay! It's great. Thank you. Yes, and thank you for listening. And we hope to, um, you know, come at you again really soon from the Mojave Desert up here on Copper Mountain Mesa with lots of sand and sunlight. Stay well, neighbors. Mm-hmm.